Thanks for tuning in to the Three Strands podcast. You're about to hear an episode from our Sunday morning worship service. To learn more about Three Strands, visit our website, threestrands.church. So uh, James has been giving us all these warnings, all these instructions for life, all these like um, ways we should be working out our faith. And some of them are kind of warnings you don't really want to hear. You're like, I'd rather just stay a kid in that area. I'd rather not grow up in that area. And so, but sometimes the truth hurts and you just, you kind of got to give it anyhow. And that's kind of how James is treating us in this book. It's, it's a little tough love. He wants us to grow up in our faith. He wants us to exercise and work out our faith. He wants us to have a faith that holds up in the real world, a faith that works, not a faith that's completely worthless. And so he's been um, kind of tackling a lot of different issues. We're going to wrap it up today in James chapter 5, but um, if you haven't been here, he's kind of hit a lot of different subjects about stuff we need to do, or, or if we say we have faith, things we need to put into practice in our life, things like uh, enduring and putting up with difficult times, not giving up, uh, uh, pressing into the Jesus way when we're faced with intense temptation or, or strong temptation, um, doing good for people who can't do good back to you, kind of showing kindness and love towards people who aren't ever going to repay you, not playing favorites, but treating everybody the same, getting a control and a handle over the things you say and your tongue and speaking words of life instead of words of death and uh, uh, um, leveraging your riches for eternity, leveraging all your time and your ability for eternity instead of grumbling and complaining about what everybody else is doing, what everybody else has. Becoming a friend of God and, and, and learning what it means to humble yourself and be a friend of God instead of becoming a friend of the world and making yourself an enemy of God. Like he's tackled a lot of different stuff and he's going to wrap it up today with a um, discussion about what we would call like a spiritual discipline or, or something you're going to put into practice spiritually in your life. And it's probably the most that kid's not happy about whatever it's going to be, but he's, he's, he's going to like talk about this spiritual discipline uh, that's like probably the most common spiritual discipline on earth. He's going to talk to us today about prayer. T, can you stand up? Let me come here so I can see your shirt for a second. This wasn't prearranged or planned, but T wore this shirt to church today. I just want you to see what it says. It's, it's really long, so I have to read it because I can't memorize it. It says, the devil saw me with my head down and thought he had won until I said Amen. And it's got like a, I don't know, a gladiator or a Roman soldier there kneeling. So it's kind of cool, right? Somebody wearing the armor of God. For, oh, yeah, give it up for T. All right, you can go sit down. I appreciate that, right? He didn't even know we were going to talk about prayer today. But did you know that, this is kind of fascinating, did you know that prayer is the most universally accepted religious practice? There's literally more people in the world. This is crazy. There's more people in the world that believe in prayer than believe in God. That's fascinating to me. Like the survey showed like about 97% of the world believes in prayer and only about 92% of the world believes in a God. I don't know what those other 5% of the people are praying to, but it's just crazy. But that's like this most universe. You could go to almost anybody and say to them like, hey, I'm praying for you. And that wouldn't offend them. Whether they believe in the same God as you or not, it's like this almost universally accepted spiritual discipline. And James is going to kind of dive into that at the end of chapter 5 in his book for us today. But it's not just any old prayer he's going to talk about. 
It's not like the bedtime prayers or the thank you for my food kind of prayer. It's not the I really need a raise at work or help me get a good grade on this test kind of prayer. It's not the, uh, uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with those kind of prayers. It's just not that kind of prayer he's going to talk about today. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It's not the cat's prayer that we taught through last year at our church. It's not any of those kind of prayers that you pray when things are kind of going well. It's the kind of prayers you pray when everything's falling apart. It's the gut-wrenching, I'm at the end of my rope, I have no way out of this situation kind of prayers. It's the like, I'm in the foxhole, I'm beaten down, I can't see any way of escape, and, and the end is in sight, what do I do now? Pray kind of prayers. It's this kind of prayer he's talking about today. And maybe you've experienced moments like that. Maybe you're in a moment like that right now. The hopeless diagnosis, the addiction you can't seem to break, the problem that just won't seem to go away. It's these type of moments that James is going to talk about. It makes sense. He's writing to an audience that was being fed to lions in Colosseums. He's writing to a bunch of Christians that were scattered around the Roman Empire at that time, being persecuted, beaten, and whipped, and just abused physically. And so he's writing to these people and he's leaving them with this kind of final instruction to be like, when you're in those kind of moments, pray, pray. But not the like the, the cuddly, cute, you know, everybody kind of prayers. This is like the I'm broken kind of prayers. And I can't figure out how to fix me kind of prayers. And so uh, he's going to dive into those today. It's this kind of prayer he's talking about. It reminds me of a story Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. We're not going to look it up. You can look it up on your own if you want. Luke chapter 18. I think it's verses 9 to 14, Luke chapter 18. But Jesus tells this story about two guys that come into the temple to pray. And the first guy he describes is a Pharisee, a religious leader, a guy who gets most of it right. A guy who does a lot of really good things. And he comes into the temple to pray. And the second guy that comes into the temple to pray is a tax collector. Now, that's not like a tax collector today, although maybe if you had a bad encounter with the IRS, you might think that. But this is like a, a description in the Bible for like a notorious sinner, a cheater, a thief. Because the tax collectors back then would literally steal your money. And so this is like a, a reference you would use a lot of times to describe like kind of the worst of the worst of society. You know, who knows what people would say today? They'd be like, it's like Hitler came in, or it's like a prostitute came in. Who knows what they'd say today, you know? But, but in walks this tax collector, Jesus says. You have these two guys, one who seems to be this really good guy, one who seems to be this really bad guy. And the really good guy, the Pharisee, stands there and he looks up to heaven and he speaks out loud so everybody can hear him. And he says, dear God, thank you that you haven't made me sinful like these other people. And at that same moment, at a distance, it says, the tax collector stands and he can't even look up. He just hangs his head. He won't even bring his eyes up. And it says he just beats his chest as he just says, Dear God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, word merciful there really be better translated as propitious. It's from the word propitiation. Maybe you've heard that before uh, if you studied like uh, the Bible growing up and the King James or something like that. But it's just a word that means like righteous satisfaction in the Greek. It means like I can't figure it out on my own. I can't solve the problems on my own. I'll never be good enough on my own. So God, would you be merciful and take my place? 
Would you substitute yourself in my place because I'm so disgusting and wicked? And he's like, God, just, just be merciful to me. I'm so sinful. And Jesus says, that guy's prayer, that guy's prayer, that's the prayer that God hears. The guy on this side that has the fancy words and he seems to do all the right things and everybody thinks he's a good person. God doesn't hear that prayer. God's looking for the prayer where I can't even hardly raise my eyes before him because I know how wicked I am and how beautiful and holy he is. And all I can do is cry out to him and just say, help me, because I can't do it on my own. It's that kind of prayer. This is the kind of prayer that James is talking about. Let me read you the verses first. It'll be James chapter 5. We'll start in verse 13. But let me just read you these verses first and we'll look at them. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Are any of you happy? You should sing praises. Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest or sincere prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. This kind of prayer. And so as I was looking through this this week, I kept asking myself these questions about the text. I'm going to ask you the same questions. I feel like James addresses four questions for us, and he answers them like so beautifully. Let me ask you the same four questions I asked as I was studying this week, and let's look at James's answers to these questions together. The first question was this kind of prayer, like who needs it? Who needs this kind of prayer? And he was pretty clear, right? He gave us three kind of groups of people that need this kind of prayer. Maybe you're in one or, one or all three of these groups. I don't know. But there's the first one. He said, people who are suffering hardships. Did you hear that? The very beginning in verse 13, he said, if you're suffering hardships, pray, right? So maybe you're suffering hardships. Maybe that's you, right? And so, uh, and then the second person he gives is the person who's uh, overcome with sickness. Did you hear that in there in verse 14? He said, um, if any of you are sick, you should call for the elders of your church. Elder is just another word for pastor. Bishop, elder, pastor, it's all the same Greek word in the New Testament. It's wherever you see any of those three, it's just pastors of your church. Call for the pastors of your church and have them anoint you with oil, praying over you, right? Praying over you. And then the third one was in verse 16, where you're stuck in sin. He says, you know, all, the, all of us who are sinners, confess those sins to each other and what? Pray for each other so that you might be healed. What is James saying? He's saying like, hey, if you're suffering hardship, if you're stuck in sin, if you're overcome with sickness, this is your kind of prayer I'm going to talk about. Is this you? He's like, if this is you, you need to send out an SOS. Look close. You'll see that later, Opie. Look close. You need to send out an SOS. Ask for help. Get some help around you if you're suffering hardship, if you're overcome with sickness, if you're stuck in sin. Now, this is James's last indicator, his last kind of differentiator between real faith and fake faith, between uh, uh, um, a faith that holds up in the real world and a faith that kind of falls apart on you out there, a faith that's working and a faith that's worthless. This is kind of his last differentiator. What he's saying is like, if you're a Christian, you will pray this way. If you have real faith, 
That when hardship comes or when sickness you can't overcome hits you or, or when you're stuck in sin, this is the kind of prayer you're going to pray. It's going to be broken prayer. Real faith. It kind of demands this. You will respond to sickness and suffering and sin with this kind of prayer. And if you're not a real Christian, if your faith is fake to everybody and maybe even to yourself, then when sickness hits or when sin is being struggled with or when hardships press in on you, you will find a different way to deal. You will run away. You'll try to hide it. You'll press it down. Push it to the back. You'll try to manage it on your own or, or push your way through it or be strong. And you'll do it under the guise of things like, well, I'm just trying to wear a brave face for everybody else in the family or I just don't want anybody else to think worse of me or I just don't want to be a burden to others. And James is like, that is fake faith. Real faith recognizes how weak we are. And it looks for help. Pride, arrogance, faith that doesn't work in the real world, phony faith is faith that talks itself into concealing all your sin, burying all the diagnoses you get, trying to tough your way through all your hardships on your own. That's fake faith is what James is going to tell us. It's real faith versus phony faith. Here's the second question I asked this week and then he answered for me was, who do I include? Who do we include in this kind of prayer? So who needs it? The first people who are needed are people who are suffering, people who are sick, people who are sinning. Hopefully that's all of us. And who do we include in this kind of prayer? Here's what he said. He said, myself. I include myself, right? Didn't he say at the beginning, if any of you are suffering hardships, pray. Ask for help yourself, right? And why is it that like we always end there instead of starting there? You, you ever heard somebody say like, you ever heard somebody say like, well, we've tried all we can try to do and now all that's left to do is just pray. It's like, like why do we end at prayer? Like, why don't we start at prayer? Why don't we like start our day with kind of like, I don't even know what suffering's coming today, Lord, but but. Even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear any evil because I know you're with me. Like, will you just help me to rise above the suffering and trust you? I don't know what the diagnosis is going to be at the next checkup, but like, why don't we, instead of waiting for the diagnosis, like, why don't we pray before we get it? Lord, no matter what comes my way, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to love you. I'm going to stay close to you. Will you just walk through this with me, whatever it is? Whenever we got some sin struggle, why don't we wait till we're like in prison? to like pray about our addictions? Why do we wait until our family's been broken apart until we ask God for help? Why do we end at prayer instead of starting with myself and being like, man, I, I need to pray like this all the time. It's crazy. It's like I let the devil trick me into thinking like, ah, don't waste God's time with that one or you can handle this on your own or you know, you just be bothering those people. And, and so I just kind of bury it all down and try to white knuckle my way through life. And the second group of people he says to include in this kind of prayer is my pastors. That's awkward. It's uncomfortable. I don't even really know my pastor that well, you're thinking. Some of you don't even know me that well, you know. And you're like, and, and, if, and if I did know them, and I told them this was going on in my life, like what would they think of me? And I, I can't speak for every pastor in the world, but I can tell you exactly what I'd think of you if you told me about some sin you're struggling with or some hardship that's come on your life. I'd think exactly the same thing about you after that that I think about you now before that. 
Because I'm under no illusion. I believe all of us are broken, wretched sinners in need of God's grace every day. And so whatever you're facing, why don't you let us in? But it takes a certain level of humility to say, like, I want my pastors to care for me. I'll call on them and I'll tell them what's going on in my life. I'll get real and honest about it instead of just trying to come in on Sunday morning with that smile on my face that's super phony. And I know it's phony. When at home I was about to get divorced on Saturday or I was in the gutter on Friday night doing who knows what. And so I come in and I front like I've got it all made instead of pulling my pastors in and saying, would you pray for me? Would you pray for me? This is what's really going on in my life. I know it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, doesn't feel natural, but that's exactly why God doesn't call us to do what's natural. He calls us to do what's supernatural. I know it's awkward. Here's the third group he says to pull in, my spiritual family. Did you hear that in there? He said in verse 16, confess your faults one to another and pray for each other so that you might be healed. And I wonder when was the last time you actually owned something you did wrong to another Christian? It's easy to go weeks, months, or years without ever admitting we've done something wrong. But listen, I'm not sure if there's a day that passes that I don't do something wrong. Think about that for a second. Anybody think there's like days that pass where they crush it and do everything perfect? And yet, it's hard for us to even remember the last time we shared a fault with another believer and asked them to pray for us. See how easily the devil tricks us? You see how easily what we think is real faith might just be fake faith? Might not be faith that holds up in the real world? And so I'm supposed to get together with other Christians and tell them my faults and my sins and ask them to pray for me. And it's probably something that should happen on a regular basis. And so despite what you might have heard in Sunday school growing up, apparently you can't just read your Bible and be okay with the Lord, just you and Him. Apparently we need each other. Or else God wouldn't even have created a church and God wouldn't even have written the New Testament because I got news for you, almost all of the New Testament was written to churches or pastors. So somehow he seems to place value on we need each other. And it's easy to look around and think like, I don't need these people. I got this. I'll just read my Bible some more. I'll just get my newest Jenny Allen devotional and I'll be good to go. And yet somehow God seems to place this great value on us getting honest with each other and praying for one another. When was the last time you did that? I just ask you, when was the last time you did that? So that's who I'm supposed to include. Makes me think of this movie I watched. Some of the guys in the room have heard me share this before, so don't, don't treat me like that old pastor that can't remember what illustrations I've already used. I know I've already used this, but some of the people don't know me here, so I'm going to tell this anyhow. But uh, many years ago now, I watched this movie, and it kind of drove this principle home for me. It's called We Were Soldiers. You can find it on Netflix and, or Amazon Prime if you want, and neither one of them even paid me or endorsed this service to tell you that. So... But it's called We Were Soldiers. Mel Gibson is the act, lead actor in the movie. It's about the Vietnam War. And uh, in the Vietnam War, America was going to try a new fighting tactic. They were going to, for the first time in human history, they were going to take soldiers and drop them behind enemy lines. And up until that point in history, wars had always been fought front to front. 
It's crazy to think about it now. It's like so far-fetched. Nobody would do that now. But, but until that war, armies would literally march out to the battlefield, stand across from each other, and take shots at each other. And if it's like considered honorable to like let the other side shoot first, you just be like, go for it, take a shot. It's crazy, right? But then the Vietnam War comes along and America decided we're going to take these helicopters and load a bunch of troops into them and fly them behind the enemy lines where it's not as fierce and it's safer. We'll drop them off and they can be free to engage the enemy in these skirmishes from all over the place, keep them confused, right? Now that's how wars are fought all over the place. You're trying to take the path of least resistance, but it's kind of cutting edge then. And so Mel Gibson leads this platoon of soldiers, and they're going to be the first ones to try this out in battle. And they say, hey, we're going to drop you right here. And they show them where it's at. It's 100 miles away from any known enemy camps or soldiers. And so they take Mel Gibson and about 50 to 70 soldiers, and they fly them behind the North Vietnamese lines, and they drop them off, and they leave to go back and pick up another 50 or 70 soldiers and fly them back. And they're going to keep doing that until they have about five or 600 soldiers there. And they drop off Mel Gibson with the first 50 or 70 soldiers and they leave. And as soon as the helicopters are like out of the shot, these North Vietnamese soldiers start pouring out of the mountainside. And what they didn't know was that that mountainside was actually a secret underground North Vietnamese base with about 5,000 soldiers in it. And the entire rest of the movie, so if you're into like war movies and blood and guts, this is your kind of movie, but if you're not, don't watch it, you know. But, and so the rest of the movie is these North Vietnamese soldiers just pouring out of this mountain, attacking and trying to overrun the Americans, and, and the Americans at the same time trying to hold the line until reinforcements can get there. And, and at one point in the conflict, Mel Gibson looks around the battlefield, and, and he surveys that his troops are about to be overrun, that they can't win. They're, they're too outnumbered. And they're about to be killed. And so he calls for his radio guy to come over. And he gets on the radio and he just screams into the radio, broken arrow. And the camera takes you back to the American headquarters. And in the headquarters, all these colonels and uh, generals and stuff kind of planning and strategizing. And there's a, a newspaper reporter in there. And, and he asks one of the aides, like, what's broken arrow? And, and the aide tells him, like, broken arrow is the American call sign that is sent out anytime soldiers are about to be overrun. And when that goes over the radio waves, any American aircraft in range stops whatever mission they're on, flies to the conflict, and just bombs the enemy. And sure enough, like three minutes later in the movie, all these American jets come in and just bomb the side of the mountain. And it doesn't win the battle, but it evens out the conflict, and they can hold the line again. And I got some groups of guys in my phone who've all heard me tell that story before. And I've told them, like, there may be times where, like, the temptation is so intense or the pain is so deep, and I know I'm about to be overrun. And all I can text is broken arrow. But will you stop whatever you're doing and just pray for me? And somehow, if I do that, I don't win the war against sin. But the conflict is evened out. And there is a way of escape. And that's the way of escape. But every time I elevate myself and I think, I can do this on my own. This isn't really a big sin, is it? Or this isn't really that bad of a, a struggle or a hardship in my life. So why bother those guys with it? Then I'm in trouble. But every time I get weak and I ask for help, God bombs the enemy. And he evens out the conflict again. So that's who needs it. And that's who we include. Now, what do we do? What's this kind of prayer look like? Let me give you the list of all the things 
that James says this kind of prayer looks like. Then I'll read them to you again so you can see them in the text again. But first thing he says was like, it looks like asking for help. So you ask for help. If you're sick, if you're suffering, pray. Ask God for help. That's prayer. Just talking to God, asking him for help, right? You're supposed to stay weak, and this keeps me weak when I ask God for help. Second thing he said was anoint with oil. And I know some of you grew up in churches like probably don't do this. And, uh, and so maybe this is like sketchy or confusing to you. But like oil in the Bible is just kind of this symbol. A lot of times it's used for like ceremonial cleaning or ceremonial uh, medicinal treatments or, or just kind of ritual. But it just kind of refers to like God's blessing. Anointing with oil is just like a blessing. And so he anoints your head with oil, your cup runs over, and you're just filled with God's blessing. And so James says, like, call the pastors of your church over and, and, and let them anoint you with oil and just pray over you. There's no magic oil, nothing miraculous about the oil. It's just symbolically my way of saying, like, I, I, I'm humbling myself. I'm not trying to look all pretty. I'm just trying to be real and raw and gut-wrenching honest about this thing. I want some healing. I want some help. And so will you let your, I guess the best way to say this would be like, would you let your pastors care for you? Or are you so proud that you know more than us, that you're better than us, that you don't need our help? Like, is it possible that God put us into your life to care for you? But you won't let us care for you because either pride or, or kind of fake humility, one side or the other, has got you convinced like, nah, I'm not going to ask for help. I'll just pray about this on my own. Anoint you with oil. He also says supposed to speak in Jesus' name. Did you hear that? This, this kind of prayer given in faith, spoken in Jesus' name will heal. And so I speak in Jesus' name. Why? Why at the end of my prayer do I say in Jesus' name I pray, amen? I don't do that because it's just like a religious ritual. I do that because I need the reminder that everything I'm asking God for has to only come to me through the power of Jesus. There is no power in me. There's only power available in one name, the name of Jesus. So I speak that name out loud to remind me that every request I make and every gift I'm given comes only through Jesus not through any effort of my own. In verse 15, he says this prayer has to be the prayer offered in faith. So I have to offer it with faith, not doubting, just believing that God can and will do anything. And in verse 16, he says I'm supposed to confess these things with honesty, right? Stop hiding and start healing. And then he also says in verse 16 to be Be sincere. Be sincere. Or he calls it earnest in the NLT, but, but be sincere. Don't have any hidden agendas when you come to God in prayer. You know how often we try to like run a con on God, manipulate him? Like don't come with a hidden agenda. Lord, if you do this, I'll do this. We're like making a bunch of bargains with God. But like, just help me, God. I can't figure it out. Be sincere. All right. Now, let me read you those verses again. You, you keep an eye out for these six things. See if you see them. Verse 13. Are any of you suffering hardships? You should pray. Ask for help. Are any of you happy? I love he throws that in. If you're any of you happy, sing praises. That's true. We should do that. But the entire rest of the passage is about like everything stinks. He just kind of throws it in. But if you are happy, go ahead and sing. You know. But are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil. In the name of Jesus, the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith 
in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you've committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Confess, honestly confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you might be healed. The earnest or sincere prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. You see those things in there? That's what my prayer is supposed to look like in these moments. Filled with that stuff. I ask you, is that what your prayer looks like? Just look at those six things again. Does your prayer look like you just asking for help? Or are you trying to like leverage God to get what you want? Is your prayer like inviting the elders, the pastors of your church to come anoint you with oil and pray over you? Or is it you got this on your own? Is the kind of prayer you pray a prayer of like, Jesus, I need you. I need the power that only you can bring. Or is it like praying to some spirit? Is it praying to like some inanimate object? Is it praying to the ancestors, talking to your dead relatives? Is it, are we praying and asking for things in the only name that can provide power for us, Jesus? Is it a prayer of belief and faith where you know for sure that God can do anything and wants to help you and wants to heal you, wants to free you and forgive you? Or is it a prayer of doubt? Is it honest confession with each other? Or is it hiding all your flaws, trying to present yourself with that Facebook look? Like you got it all pulled together and you got it all figured out. Is it a sincere prayer? Are you trying to manipulate the situation and others around you? Are you the Pharisee in the middle of the temple saying, thank you, God, that my problems aren't as bad as everybody else's, that I'm not as sinful as they are. Oh, I prayed today, so I know the Lord will hear me. And he's like, I don't even hear that. Or is it like, man, I am so wicked, so broken, so sick, so sinful, so oppressed, so persecuted. I, I just need your mercy. Pastors, I, I just need God's mercy. Will you pray for me? My brother and sister in Christ, I, I just need God's mercy. Will you pray for me? Broken arrow, I'm, I'm broken. I'm going to lose the fight. Will you pray for me? Is that what it looks like? And then James goes on and he says, this is what will happen if you pray like that. Let me give you all the things he said. And you can look back at it if you want later. It's verses 15 and 16. But here's all the things he says will happen if we pray that way with those people in those moments. Here's what he says will happen. He says you'll be made well. You'll be forgiven. You'll be healed. You'll experience great power. And you'll see wonderful results. Now, I don't know about you. But, but when you're suffering hardship, like when I'm suffering hardship, when I'm sick and I can't just take something over the counter to fix it, or when I'm struggling with sin, I would love for these five things to be true. Wouldn't you? Like wouldn't you love to be healed? To be forgiven? To experience great power? To, to see wonderful results? Wouldn't you love to see all these things or be part of all these things? This is the answer. Are we praying like this? Are we praying broken prayers? Like, are, are we begging for God's mercy? Are we inviting our pastors into it? Are we, are we offering to speak honestly and ask for help from those around us in the church? Are we doing it the James way, the Jesus way? Then James gives us this example, verses 17 and 18. Sounds like an example that that we wouldn't relate to, but he says this, as Elijah was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly or sincerely again that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield 
its crops. You can look this up on your own too. 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19, this kind of piece of Elijah's life where it looks like, hey, he's this Old Testament prophet. God's not going to answer me like he answers him. And I'm not as good as he was. You just got to read his story, man. Like he was just like us. His, his life was like this roller coaster of like faith and doubt and, and seeing God do great things and yet the very next day, like not believing God could help him. It's crazy, but if you read just those three chapters, you see uh, Elijah, he's like um, scared. Scared of like this wicked king and queen. And God tells him to like prophesy that there's not going to be any rain. And Elijah prays. He says, don't let it rain. And, and it doesn't rain for three and a half years. And, and they want to kill him. So he goes and he hides out stays with this widow and her son for three and a half years because he's terrified of these politicians, even though he just saw God answer the prayer not to make it, make it rain. He comes back at the end of that, and, and he faces off on the top of this mountain against, against 450 false prophets who are praying to this false God. And, and, and Elijah prays, and God answers that prayer by sending down fire from heaven to consume an offering. Elijah sees that and and is emboldened and supernaturally empowered to single-handedly execute all 450 of those false prophets by himself, only to the next day be terrified because the queen said she was going to kill him. And he runs away. He prays and asks God to send rain again, and God sends rain, and he goes and he hides in this cave because he thinks this little woman's going to kill him. Think about it for a second. Like he saw, he prayed and prayed and prayed and he saw God stop the rain for three and a half years. He saw God provide food for him when there was drought and famine everywhere. He saw God send down fire from heaven when he asked for it. He saw God give him the power to kill 450 enemies single-handedly. He saw God give him the power to bring rain on the land. He saw all of that and ran away from one lady. Because he was just like us. And if we pray the Jesus way, if we pray the way James is telling us to pray, if we pray not with humility, or not with pride, but with humility. Can you put that list back up that I had there, the, um, the, the six things there? I forgot to say this. I want to mention this. It's so important. The ask for help one. The one before that, Cars. Yeah, that one. This is how he said we're supposed to pray. If you look at all six of those things, you know what they do? All six of them really do the same thing. They remind me that my help comes from the Lord, not me. And so I keep speaking Jesus' name. I keep asking my pastors to anoint me with oil and pray for me. I keep being honest with other believers and asking them to pray for me. I keep crying out for help. I keep believing that the only answers I have will come from Jesus. All of those things keep reminding me that I must be less and less so that Jesus will be greater and greater. I must decrease so he can increase. I must humble myself and trust that only God can answer my prayer. Do you get that? He ends this book in such a cool way. He's taught us a lot of things, but the last two verses of the book, can I read them to you? They're in verses 19 and 20. This is what he says to sum up the whole five chapters. My dear brothers and sisters, there's that phrase again. If someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. It's like he takes one last shot at reminding us that there's the Jesus way and there's our own way. There's the gospel 
and there's fake faith. There's, there's the way you want to do it and the way God says to do it. I know you say you're a Christian. I know you say you believe. I know you say you pray to prayer. I know you say you belong to a church or you walk down some aisle or you were baptized when you were not. I know you say all those things, but if you say you have faith, you should show you have faith. And if you don't show that you have faith, then your faith is fake. Don't be deceived. Real faith, real faith doesn't give up, doesn't give up during temptation and trial. It presses into the Jesus way. Real faith helps those who can't repay them. Real faith doesn't show favoritism. It treats everybody the same. Real faith cracks down on their tongue and speaks words of life. Real faith doesn't befriend the world system. It looks like a fool because it's following the Jesus system. Real faith leverages its riches and its abilities and its time for eternal value things. It doesn't waste them. Real faith, it prays. It prays like a gut-wrenching, I'm at the end of my rope and I have no idea what to do and all I can do is say, help me God. Pastors, will you beg God to help me? Fellow Christians, will you beg God to help me? Because I can't fix myself and I can't overcome this problem. That's real faith. And James is trying to teach us that anything else is fake faith. So I ask you this question to end this series. Do you have living faith or do you have dead faith? It isn't living faith versus atheism. That isn't what James presents. He presents living faith with dead faith, real faith versus phony faith. Everybody in this room probably thinks they have faith. The question is, do I have faith that works or do I have faith that's worthless? This is what James is challenging us on. And it's like he's throwing down the gauntlet and saying, it's so easy for people not to understand the truth, for people to abandon the truth, for people to choose the opposite of Jesus's way. And he's throwing out the challenge, not to the pastors, but to all the Christians and saying, it's your job to win them back. It's your job to show them truth and grace. It's your job to show them the real Jesus way, the real gospel, that Jesus died and rose from the dead from the, for them, that they're wicked and broken and they need help. And the only way they're going to get help is if they ask Jesus for it. They ask him to save them. They surrender control of their life to his leadership. That's it. And it's not my job to do it. It's our job to do it. And when we stand before the Lord someday, he's not going to ask me what message I communicated to your neighbor. He's not going to ask me how much love I showed to your coworker or how much truth I spoke to your classmate. He's going to ask you about it. Did you show him real faith? Did you tell him about real faith? Did you live out what you say you believe? I love this quote from C.S. Lewis who said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. That's what we serve. A God who illuminates everything in life and shows us the way to go. All throughout the book of Acts, Christianity is called the way. Way before the Mandalorian. It's called the way. And what James is trying to show us is the way. And the way is you don't just go out and tell everybody you're a Christian and that they should be better. The way is that I go out and I show everybody I'm a Christian. And I do it by following the instructions James just gave us for the last seven weeks. 
I hope you'll do that. I hope if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you will believe and receive the way. You will just say to him, I need saved. I can't do it on my own. I will give everything I have to you and surrender my life to you because you're the son of God. I hope you will look down, beat your chest, and just say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And if you're here today and you think you're already a Christian, I hope you'll look at your life and be like, am I really living out this faith I say I have? That's the truth of God's word. As always, three stranders, you are free to do what you want with God's word. I hope you won't just hear the word. I hope you'll do the word. I hope you'll go out of here and not just say you're a Christian, but show you're a Christian. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, you just pour out some anointing oil on our crowd right now. Some blessing, some healing whether ceremonial or medicinal or symbolic, would you just pour out your glory on our room? Would you give people here the courage to act on what they've heard from your word today? To become people who pray for help, not last but first. People who invite their pastors to care for them and pray for them. People who are honest about their struggles and their sins and their faults with each other and and surround themselves with an army of people who will pray for them and ask for help. God, would you just challenge us to live the Jesus way? It's in his name, as always, we pray for help. Amen. Thanks again for listening in on the Three Strands podcast. If you've never visited us in person, We'd love to meet you face-to-face. We gather every Sunday, 11 a.m. at the McCreary County Park Building. We hope to see you soon.